0: everyone. Welcome. Welcome here. Show 149 on Crypto Voices. Matthew Majinskis, your host here from Eastern Europe, as always, joined by my co-host Alec Harris from Halo Privacy, Eastern U.S. Alec.
1: Good morning. Good morning, guys. I feel bad that everyone's wearing a collar but me. That's all right. That's all right. Do but you want me to change? I mean, it's Monday morning. We figured. <laughs> so you want me to look employed? Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> or employable would be good.
2: I feel like I should be wearing a hat. You know, I think I'd, maybe I'll I'd be looking a little cooler.
1: I'm just flashing. flashing I'll switch the out the
2: collar for the hat. Maybe we'll be all good.
1: When I, when I see you next, I'll bring you one. Then you can have it for the next time. There show. we go.
0: Yeah, we appreciate it. Lewis is actually rescheduled for us. Uh, Monday morning, I was just telling him pre-show, it's probably the least fun time to do a podcast and be philosophical. But that's what we're going to try to do here today. So our guest here is Lewis Cohen. Uh, He's with uh, DLX Law, very active in the space, securitization for 20 plus years and capital markets. I have seen uh, lots of work in the securities tokenization uh, space, also a monumental paper that you have co-authored, which I wanted to talk about a little bit more today as well. So much happening right now. So uh, really happy to have you on. Lewis, thanks a lot for joining.
2: No, thanks for having me. And I do want to emphasize that when you gave that time period, I, I started when I was in high school. So just in case anyone's trying to do the math on that <laughs> 20 plus year thing, you know, as a child prodigy. So just... Fair nail enough.
0: Nail now. We've o- we've only started video. So, you know, these are the things that...
2: <laughs> I'm glad to be here. Thank you for for having me.
0: Great. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I almost don't know where to begin. Um, you know, is Bitcoin a security? <laughs>
2: Generally not. <laughs> uh, I, I, no. Um, I mean, the, the question, of course, is, is, is why do we even have securities laws? And, and what are securities? You know, um, before crypto assets came along, this was not a particularly controversial question. People thought they knew what was and what was not a security. They can kind of take a look, pick it up. Oh, <laughs> it's a security. That's not. Uh, it's really only when crypto assets came along that people started getting befuddled by this uh, question.
0: Yeah. And there is so many, you know, different buckets and uh, you tackle a lot of this in your paper. Uh, Obviously, we don't have to break all this down here this morning, uh, Monday morning, no less. But um, it's really, you know, Gary Gensler is making a lot of news. Uh, Coinbase has made a lot of news with their Wells notice. Uh, It seems like Coinbase themselves were regulated and approved by the SEC to become a publicly traded security company, a stock. Uh, So that's interesting. And then a few years later, the SEC serves them a Wells notice. Um, what do you make of that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I try to avoid specific comments on specific companies, but I think it's important to understand that the process of getting registered with the SEC is not a blanket cure for anything that you might subsequently do that may or may not violate any particular laws. At the same time whatever the company is, when they go through that process and are reasonably transparent about it. um, And then, you know, a relatively short amount of time later, you know, there are questions about that. You kind of have to ask yourself, does the right hand know what the left hand's doing?
0: The way that this whole digital asset security space seems to be developing is not with, in my view, someone who's been following the space for a while, it's not necessarily from the government side, any sort of principled view based on you know, nearly a hundred years of securities law. It's mostly based on what comes to the market. Then there's probably some failures, some scams. They don't have the capacity to legislate or or to regulate or uh, what's the word? Investigate them all. And so it's sort of the sort of ad hoc jump from one thing to the next whack-a-mole. And uh, it certainly doesn't seem like at least, you know, for Americans, for United States companies, it doesn't seem like there's much clear guidance thus far, you know, 14 years into, into Bitcoin already uh, on how to operate in this space. Do you, do you also see that or do you think it's getting better?
2: Yeah, no, it's, there's, there's obviously a lot of questions here and not a lot of answers. The, yeah, the, the question to answer ratio is is way, way out of whack. I think the reason for that is because crypto introduces a certain fluidity that is confounding to all persons concerned, whether you're an investor, whether you're a regulator, whether you're a marketplace or a service provider. It is this sort of hard to pin it down as to what is really going on here that that creates all these challenges. The government, generally speaking, wants to police markets where there are investments. The challenge has been that you know, most investments that are kind of fungible and numerous, you know, are securities. And so, of course, those are regulated markets. We have other sorts of investments uh, all over the place, be it real estate, uh, be it collectibles and art, be it all different kinds of things. But those just don't have the same characteristics of crypto. Now, crypto comes along and it's kind of this mashup between the two things it it, in some ways it looks and feels a lot like stocks and securities In other ways it's nothing like that at all and so you know i don't think as those of us who are in the been in the space for a long time should be surprised that it's causing a lot of consternation as well what do you do about this the the question is we do have rules and laws in the united states and i think what a lot of people the crypto community say is look look let's go back to our first principles and apply those those rules and then if if we want to change those rules because crypto is confusing us. There's a way to do that, and you go to Congress and you have that discussion. Um, that's how policy gets made, right? You don't. You don't have this idea that we're not sure, so we're just going to kind of pick uh, a, a route here. That 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 really doesn't make a lot of sense. You got to, if there are policy decisions to be made, you know, they should be made in Congress, whatever, whether we like them or whether we don't like them.
0: And what about the last you know few weeks? We have Elizabeth Warren becoming popular here with this anti crypto army. Kraken had a big fine Coinbase with the Wells notice. I know you don't have to comment on this specifically, but what about the trend? Is it, is it looking more bleak or is it looking like maybe there's at least going to be something happening for more clarity in the near term?
2: Yeah, it's Monday morning, as you said, so I'm trying, I'm going to try not to be bleak. Um, You know, I, (laughs) I, 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 have used the term more inevitable. We were heading in this direction. This is, you know, this was, there was a collision, a coming, and I think in some respects, the sooner we get to the collision and get to the other side of it, we'll be better off. There are legitimate questions on all sides. I'm, I did a, a talk at um, University of Chicago in January on crypto. And one of the questions I, I, I posed to the Uh, attendees who are pretty much all from the crypto community was, why do we think there is so much anti-crypto sentiment out there? I think those of us who are in the crypto community do need to address that. I think just attributing it all to sort of Ludditism and sort of fear of technology doesn't quite do the trick. I think everybody's got to be introspective here. At the same time, um, you know, when you see you know folks like you know some of our senators you know saying you know, getting quoted and popularizing sentiment like we're building an anti-crypto army what do you think in there right and how does that position the united states in terms of openness to technology so We've got a lot of challenges that we have to address here, and, and and why we wrote the long article was to let's go back, let's try and like tone down the, the the temperature on all sides, and let's start talking about what's really going on, and then figure out you know good policy answers so that people who are interested in this technology can use it in a way that's safe, sound, and thoughtful, and people who you know don't want it don't find you know institutions that they care about sort of implicated by something they're not interested in. So we just my view is we need to have a little bit more balancing and open discussion in in all directions but you know um, whether it's, it's it's folks like 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 People, you know, senators on the Hill making very inflammatory statements or whether it's crypto people, you know, doing sort of the rough equivalent in the other, you know, you know, we've had enough of the laser eyes and the have fun, stay in poor stuff going. So there's stuff going all ways that's, in my view, not super constructive. Like, how about we just try and like, let's use this fascinating uh, technology that Satoshi, whoever she, uh, he or it was or they were, you know, has given us and let's, you know, work on building things that, that really make people's lives better.
1: Yeah, so let's. <clears throat> you said that this kind of reckoning was was coming, and um, I agree. But let's go back and pretend that SBF wasn't a fraud and FTX was a just a golden uh, platform that was really well managed, uh, and they were clearly making headway in the U.S. with regulators. <clears throat> so if that hadn't happened, and maybe we still had Three AC and Voyager and BlockFi, but but FTX was still solvent, would we have the scrutiny? Uh, and the fervor that we do now
2: it's a great question i I would say, yes, but not nearly to this extent you know it, the, the f t x unfortunately was was a lose two ways uh proposition uh number one, it was enormous, and uh you know it it was well respected as an organization and generally uh put forward as something that that was sort of the the shining light of crypto and in regulatory policy and and that falling apart. You know, created a lot of 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 concern and sort of lack of trust, right? Well, if they they were turns out to be crooks, you know who else is? And then, of course, the second piece is FB, SBF as an individual. You know, really made his brand on Capitol Hill, engaging with regulators, engaging with policymakers, and um, you know that. Personal level of like I'm having dinner with somebody, right? And it turns out that they were just looking me in the eye and lying to me about what was going on there. That creates a lot of distrust. So was this inevitable? I do think so, um, uh, Alec. But but is 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 this you know exacerbated dramatically by the the circumstances of FTX? I absolutely believe so. Yes. Do you think that
1: anti Bitcoin or anti crypto? Uh, positions in among regulators or even let's say among elected officials. Do you think that's a winning platform going forward? Because I mean, Warren is making a big bet on it, right?
2: Yeah, I mean, clearly there has been for some time and and perhaps increasingly so. It's very hard to monitor. Exactly. Right. You know, this political sentiment that this is something to make hay out of. Um, I think it, it's it's important to look at the wider progressive position in understanding Bitcoin and crypto, and where that fits into things, the, the, for quite some time, uh, the progressive position on financial services has been that basic banking should be a public good. And, and one way to think about this, for those you know here in the states, is to look back at healthcare. You know, the, a major tenet of, of progressive politics for, you know, 20, 30 years, God knows, right, was we should have national health care. Every American deserves, you know, decent health care. Banking is kind of the next step in that, right? Um, and so the progressive position, broadly speaking, is everybody should have access to a bank account and it should be safe, cheap, easy to use, ja, ja, ja. Well, crypto comes along and on the one hand, it helps uh to democratize access to financial services but on the other hand it creates this fly in the ointment of how you sort of carefully construct over many many years this world of basically government-sponsored banking you know they, they there's active talk in the progressive movement about using the post office as banking. Many other countries use the post office as banking. There's just anybody can rock up to the post office, have a checking account from the government, et cetera, et cetera. All of a sudden, this all is kind of turned upside down. So we should not be surprised that it's caused consternation. What is frustrating to me is rather than reaching out and saying, hey, how can crypto help us achieve our goals or at least be a balance? Instead, what we see is this active hostility. Hey, man, we have this carefully calibrated plan and now all of a sudden you guys are messing it all up um so it's really complicated and i think if you don't understand kind of the longer game and uh, you know kind of in the progressive mindset i think it's difficult to understand where crypto fits in to all of that discussion so you think it's a uh,
1: because to me it seems generational too so uh, do you think the younger classes of progressive legislators feel the same way
2: I think it's a great point. I, I think, look, I'm not a, you know, I'm a scholar of progressive politics. So please take what I say, you know, with a, a certain amount of, of grains of salt. Um, that being said, I think yes, it is to some extent generational, no doubt. I think you know, you know, the sort of millennials and under are are really much more comfortable with everything being digital but at the same time if you look at politicians like bernie sanders uh you know he's developed a tremendous following in for lack of a better term the younger generation and so i think making hard and fast statements about where the generational divide you know, applies is really difficult and challenging. Um, I would just be very cautious about that. It's not that there's nothing to it, but I think it's it's not as as simple. I think it's really more this very foundational question for me, which is what is the role of the government in our lives? Crypto is fundamentally about creating new ways of separating the role of the government from the individual. And the progressive movement is generally and I would like to think well-intentioned, but generally about putting more of the government into people's lives. And that fundamental friction is really, I think, where the locus, where I locate some of this you know, very deep hostility, very deep.
1: Yeah, that, well said. Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit. So one of my gripes with every single one of these kind of implosions we've seen in crypto going back to 3AC and all the way through present and then into the banking crisis too, uh, especially with you know, Signature and um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank, and uh, the third one that begins with the nest. Wow, uh, uh, Silvergate. Silvergate, 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 yeah, Silvergate. So I think the narratives that we see that are presented to us try to conflate some of the underlying, like they conflate Bitcoin with Ponzi schemes. They conflate venture capital with the mismatch in uh, you know the bank's balance sheet, and there's. There's a tie in of like these kind of boogeymen with really what are fundamentally human and structural problems. Uh, and I see your industry, right? The, the, the folks that are trying to, you know, bridge that gap is super important here. And I know like some people are like, you know, the law should stay out of Bitcoin. And the whole reason it's there is because we don't need it. But the, the reality is someone needs to parse those two things, right? The, the invention of Bitcoin has nothing to do with SPF being a fraud, clearly, right? But the two become the same story. Uh, and so, you know, your view on the industry is really close to, I think, well, I'm making assumptions, right, but you're kind of close to those two things. Do you see an ability to separate underlying technology from like these kind of boogeyman narratives?
2: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, you know, one of the things you have to bear in mind, and, and most particularly with Bitcoin, right, is that, uh, you know, Satoshi's white paper was uh, called, you know, a peer to peer system of electronic cash. It was not uh, called a new form of 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 gold, you know, va- you know, store of value. Along the way, as everybody, you know, probably watching the podcast, is understands that that narrative got changed, and that's where things get, in my mind, a little bit more complicated. Ain't nothing stopping Bitcoin, a peer to peer system of electronic cash, as long as the internet is open in most countries and people can operate, you know nodes and, and have access to electricity to run miners, There's there's just not stopping that thing. Um, and that's going to operate and you're going to be able to move value from place to place without um, a third party intervention uh, for as long as that system is running. And, and that doesn't matter. However, the ability to move value from one location to another with Bitcoin is ir- is indifferent to the price of a single bitcoin, right? So very few people are doing it. Quite a lot of people usually If bitcoin is at three hundred dollars or three million dollars, you can move use the bitcoin network to move value from place to place. Where things get if chif- different is if we're saying, well, we think that ultimately we have a price target on bitcoin. You know, it we got to sixty thousand. You know, it should get to a hundred thousand by the end of the year, whatever number, number, balaji million dollars, whatever, whatever. That's a very different narrative and a different story that does start to intersect with kind of the government and regulation, because when you're just using this electronic system to move value from place to place, you're not really intersecting at least if you do it on your own, with the regulatory system much, if at all. However, when you're saying, well, we need it to store value, that means you need to create more demand uh, for holding Bitcoin or other digital assets, but we're sticking with Bitcoin, then there are people who want to sell it. And that, that starts to change that narrative and make the whole thing more complex. We say, well, how do we get institutional money into Bitcoin, right? Everybody should hold 5%. Everybody should hold 2% of Bitcoin. Now you have a very different kind of discussion. Now we talk about cost. Right. Well, who's going to custody that Bitcoin? So if we're just talking about, you know, the users of Bitcoin over the first five, seven years, whatever you want to call it, the vast majority custodied it for themselves. They had it, you know, they either foolishly had it on their laptop or they moved it to a ledger or wherever they did. But, you know, they had a paper wallet, God knows. Right. But they, you know, as we started to focus the narrative on price appreciation, that required more and more capital to move into Bitcoin. And that required a different or that that led to different kinds of discussions about regulation, the law the government and and you know cryptocurrencies now it's a store of value now we're substituting uh, you know, institutional investors holding, you know, other commodities, holding stocks, holding government bonds for Bitcoin. And so we should not be surprised as that narrative moved, that relationship with the regulatory state also moved, right? So I think it's really important when we talk about regulation and Bitcoin or regulation and crypto that we are saying what are we doing with it? And why are we doing that? Right? And so as those narratives fuse, it gets more complicated in terms of those relationships.
1: Yeah, uh, it certainly is getting more complicated. And I kind of think that the advent of derivatives, which was inevitable, right, created, I don't know, it brought the wrong kind of attention. We brought it on ourselves too, right? Like there's plenty of native derivative platforms in the space. Um, So uh, you brought up custody. First of all, I I imagine Satoshi would be like, guys, Bitcoin is custody, right? Like I I gave you custody. What you're saying is you don't trust yourself with it. Um, But the when you bring in custody in the US, right, there's a whole other host of regulations that come with that, right? Because you have counterparty risk, and then you have the, have the audit capability. Uh, and then there's the whole like, cybersecurity angle of it, right? And it's very hard to get that insured. But we have seen people enter the custody space, you know, somewhat successfully. Um, so do you think that custody helps with that kind of investor protection narrative? Or does it matter um, yeah, c- that there yeah. are like custodians now?
2: Yeah. Custody is, is, is really crucial. And I think um, you know, there are just a lot of folks out there on a, on a kind of continuum, including just sort of individuals who really like the idea of of having, you know, Bitcoin being able to, for example, keep it on exchange and take it off the exchange whenever they, they feel needed. And I, I understand I have a ledger and I could use it. I don't really want to do that right now. But the idea that within 10 minutes, I could take, you know, $100 or a $1 million dollars off an exchange and and put it in the back of my pocket, you know, is, is very enticing. But, but realistically, the bulk of the custody issue is around third-party managers of other people's money. In effect, you know, you know, and in those cases, you do get into important, you know, issues around protection, just like with you know somebody managing anybody's value. In whatever they're doing, they may be managing somebody's art. We would expect if you know somebody's invested in some you know Matisse painting that's worth you know ten million dollars, you're going to make a darn sure that you're not putting it in your garage. You're going to put it someplace very safe because of the unique nature of crypto it's been difficult to say well what exactly are those best practices here's where i would you know throw some stones at the government like where are you sort of helping folks say, look, you know, let's have a consultation. Let's put out, uh, you know, uh, what we call a notice for proposed rulemaking, which is a, a process under the Administrative Procedures Act and say, here's what are we think good custody could be, good control could be. Here's the questions we have. Here's the answers we like. Now, we recently got uh, something um, from the SEC on custody more generally and registered investment advisors or RIAs. Um, there's a, a a notice for proposed rulemaking out now. So that's sort of good, but it really doesn't do as much as, as it possibly could. And it frankly just punts on crypto altogether, just noting that it's probably not possible to hold crypto on a uh, digital asset marketplace um, and, and, and meet your obligations if you are a registered investment advisor, which is a, a particular type of money manager, right? So um, the government can do a lot more and other governments are doing more. And I think we'll, we need to see that process because there are, you know, a lot of folks out there. There are investment funds out there. There are family offices and high net worth individuals who really feel like maybe Bitcoin is the hedge to the inflation they see coming the devaluation of either the dollar or other major fiat currencies. And they feel very strongly as a thesis that they would like to be heavily invested in that. And I think it's not the place of the government to decide whether that's a Great idea or a really stupid idea. People need to make their own decisions and allocate their capital their own way, and that's that's a fundamental principle of our of our open economic system. And by the government not providing clear rules as to how to do that, it's really hindering uh, our growth. You know, I would say.
0: Are you familiar with the situation that Caitlin Long is finding herself in right now, with her uh, custody custodia bank uh, trying to be more than one hundred percent? custodied i.e. this is like a bailment account this might be a little bit different than your specialty but uh i'm familiar with the situation yeah and it's kind of interesting kind of goes back to some monetary policy things but actually you know it seems that the government is telling her that her bank was too
2: safe and, uh, it well, can't it's be... not, that's not exactly what they're saying. I mean, they, they, okay. I mean, the 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 Fed order was very critical, whether it was justifiably critical or not. It was very critical of the individuals who were involved, and at least they put that was the uh, you know you could read the order; it's public, right? So you can see mm-hmm. what they had to say. That being said, um, you know the the Fed has shown uh, a great. Um, uh negative stance has had a great neg- as a strongly negative stance let's see it's monday so get that mouth working at some point um uh, on on what might be called narrow banks which are basically financial institutions that have access to the Fed, but are really not doing lending activities. So long before, you know, uh, a Bitcoin-based bank out of Wyoming came along, the the Fed's been very negative about that. Basically, and ironically here, right, this is the great irony, is because they're they're afraid that 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 would lead to people moving their deposits into those sort of arrangements. Because they say, well, why should I take, you know, fractional reserve risk? I don't really get much from it. I'm getting like 2% interest. Why do I care what's in it for me? I'd rather just keep it at the Fed. What the heck, right? Um, So so ostensibly, one of the reasons that the Fed was negative about that sort of business model holding aside allegations correct or incorrect about the nature of the people operating it is because they were afraid of that. Yet net result is by going through what we did with Silicon Valley Bank, Alec, as you mentioned earlier, um, you know, effectively what we did is we sent a strong message to depositors: Hey, you're not necessarily safe if you're, you know, you have money at a bank above two hundred fifty thousand dollars, which virtually every business account would have, right? And um, and so I, I think there's still plenty to criticize there. You know, even you know, I don't want to get into the rights and wrongs of the particular situation in Wyoming uh, because it's complicated. Um, but I, I think what I would say is that the wider point you make is very valid, which is what exactly is our policy stance here? What are we saying to people about deposits and where to keep their money? I, I locate this very much. The, the moment you know the, white, the Satoshi white paper got published, all of these questions got started. That was the locus of these things, and it's just been a ticking time bomb to get to this point where people say, "Well, where do I store my value?" And you told me banks were safe, and they're obviously not safe. You know, so what am I supposed to do? And so I think. These these are these are really important questions that our uh, regulatory state has it just appears unprepared to grapple with at the moment
1: could you imagine an executive order uh it was uh, 6102 right the could you imagine a, a 6102 for bitcoin
2: i don't think so but you know um uh, i think we're still you know grappling with this question and i think uh, as you mentioned a bit earlier some of the the issues around crypto are definitely own goals in terms of whether it was. I mean, look, n- nobody other than the the three or four individuals it appears primarily responsible at, at FTX were responsible for FTX. But the fact of the matter is, you know, the crypto community has not really prioritized you know regulatory compliance over other factors and they said look it's you know I mean, in many ways the crypto community reminds me guys of of a teenager who's like just kind of finding their way like i'm going to do it because i'm going to do it because i want to do it and nobody's going to tell me not to do it and that's what i'm doing and you know everybody has a place in their life where they should they should be like that but the concern about regulatory orders and attempts to constrain the use of crypto Are certainly exacerbated when that's you know what the parent is kind of hearing like i'm taking the car whether you like it or not i got the keys i'm driving it you know so i i i'm not saying that i and i i feel strongly that people should be able to exercise their their freedom of choice with their with with their value and how they do things, but we just have to recognize that things come at a, a cost, and I think part of the cost is some hostility amongst you know you know enforcement agencies and policymakers about well what are you guys really doing here? And I think um, you know I think as we see the ramifications of the last you know at least you know call it you know ten plus years of 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 monetary policy starting to come to roost. I think we're going to see that narrative change. And I think people are going to realize that there was a story on Twitter over the weekend, I think it was, with somebody in the lowdown, relatively speaking, in the military, saying the military should be holding Bitcoin, you know, um, if if people picked up that story, you know, as as, and and so I think the idea that crypto is a net positive for the national defense is a narrative that needs to kind of come back. And it's something I I think is absolutely true. You know, we need Mm -hmm. to have as much, control over and understanding of and, fl- and ability to engage with these new forms of value movements rather than scaring them away.
1: If I can sum up the legal profession really quickly, people would come to a lawyer because they're in trouble and they need to get out of trouble or because they want to avoid getting in trouble in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. And we see that in crypto, but it seems like you're damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? Because the companies that have leaned as far into trying to like find the rules and follow them still get in trouble. And the companies that try to get around their rules, you know, jurisdictional arbitrage or just you know outright scams, they get in trouble, right? So, like, what what's how do you how do you be right?
2: It's very <laughs> tough. That's I mean, you're absolutely right, and we've seen you know a number of folks, um, you know, kind of from practical experience, you know, say that. You know, I've worked a lot with folks in the government and enforcement, and, and the vast majority are generally well-intended and are not just trying to to sort of put people in a bad spot. But the net result is when you have policymakers with very, very extreme views, it's really hard to do that. I think we can look to other jurisdictions like the UK, like the EU that have not adopted such an aggressive and anti-crypto stance as to saying, look, maybe things work out there. Maybe they don't. But it's not sort of a damned if you do, damned if you don't sort of approach. Um, I think the U.S. has really kind of backed itself a bit into a policy corner with this stance and and exactly as you say by not you know, you know, encouraging people to engage constructively, all they've done is tell people, go, you know, go set up a Cayman entity, go do everything you can to reduce U.S. jurisdiction. And that's really not constructive in the long run. It doesn't fundamentally change what's going on. And it doesn't really help the United States, you know, further its own policy goals in the longer run. Uh, One analogy, and Alec, you and I may have talked about this before, um, but I like to look to is, is alcohol prohibition at the beginning of the 20th century. You know, there are, and there's a great social history, by the way, any of your listeners, um, by um, a guy named Daniel Ockrent um, uh, on prohibition. And it's a, Easy read, um, yeah. Pick it up on Amazon, or whatever. And uh, but you know, the background of prohibition, there were a lot of things wrong with you know the the sort of tavern system, the way alcohol was sort of used in, in a way to subvert a lot of working people. There were plenty of legitimate things to say. Man, this is a messed up system here. And the the, the people who favored prohibition came mostly from a, a genuinely good place of wanting society to be better. I think it's important to get in touch with that. But prohibition was a manifestly incredibly stupid idea, right? Because it didn't achieve the policy goals that were stated, right? All it did was people kept doing the same things and it was even more difficult to regulate. It was even more difficult to moderate. It it took tax revenue away from the U.S., which was a big driver. Um, It encouraged organized crime, all of these negative factors. I wish I could if I had one goal guys you know it would be give that book to a lot of our policymakers and say come on what are, what are you doing here man you're you're not achieving your own stated goals right let's let's how do we bring people into the tent and figure out ways that people can live with this rather than telling people what not to do that's just ultimately not a constructive way of engaging
1: yeah that's an interesting comparison um, so i have a kind of a tongue and cheek quick- tongue in cheek question, but uh, so the Three Arrows Capital guys, they went to Dubai, Doquan gets arrested in Montenegro. So in the fictional world where you have Lewis coin and you kind of rug pull on all your investors,
2: where are you going to flee to? <laughs> well, if, you know, if 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 I do that, I'm ain't, ain't telling you guys. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, the the, the problem is, it's, it's it, but it's an important question, right? Even if tongue in cheek, which is how do we get to this point? And um, you, know, I think we have to understand that the ability to control your own value opens up windows for being exploited in ways that you previously may may have been more difficult. And that's just two sides of the same coin. If we want people to have more control over their own value, it becomes more difficult to prevent the bad actors who are always there. There were fraudsters there 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Poor Mr. Ponzi was like in 1915 or something, right? He was defrauding people. That's just human nature. The challenge is, is, that crypto does make it easier because people have more control over their own value. It does make it easier for bad actors to exploit them and to get to the situation where you got Doquan. And again, whether Doquan's a bad actor or not, I reserve judgment on. Right, but you know, people in in, in you know hiding out in various jurisdictions. You know what we what we want to have, and again, I think this is where there's a bit of a failing by our our our, our friends in government is rather than focusing primarily primarily on the bad actors, we're focusing on everybody across the board, and that creates this environment where people say, and as a lawyer, people come to you know us and say, "Well, look, like look, I, I'm, I'm whatever I do is going to be illegal. So what the heck?" And then that sort of tends people to say, "Well, if I'm, if if that's illegal, I might as well do something else that's illegal too." And uh, you kind of go down a, a bad path there. So I, I rather than seeing you know you know people fleeing and and, and potentially getting away with things, I'd rather see people being encouraged to, to, to think about the, you know, the community, the society we all live in and behave, you know, reasonably. And, and, uh, there's plenty of people doing that right now. We just, you know, we just need our regulators to focus, you know, on the bad actors and not so much on the good actors, or at least finding ways to help the good actors, you know, engage in activity in a way that works.
0: I'd like to pivot to, uh, this paper that yep. uh, is linked on your uh, law firm's website. Uh, monster of a paper almost 200 pages uh the actually i'm not even sure i know this word ineluctable
2: ineluctable modality ineluctable
0: modality of securities law why fungible crypto assets are not securities uh i was good i I should just ask you what ineluctable means but i guess secondly uh, we'll we'll do that too what what is yeah what is the point of the the paper in general
2: well, look, Let's. I'll give you the background story um, uh, on the paper in a moment because it's vaguely interesting, at um, least interesting to me. But um, uh, the fundamental point here is that and, and this really kind of, I would say, uh, you know, Matt goes back to the very beginning of our conversation here, which is the fluidity of value and what is a security, right? Because before crypto came along, we have a we had a principle under US law that if the only sort of financial investment transaction that could be regulated as securities were sort of things that were clearly enumerated: a stock, a bond, a debenture, a note, uh, participation interest, things that everybody can, oh yes, I know that, right? If if you limited it to that people are creative and they'll find workarounds and they'll they'll create investment schemes right that that don't quite fall into any of those categories and so when congress decided after the depression and after the stock market crash more particularly that we needed federal regulation of securities not just state regulation Congress said, OK, well, we're going to borrow this kind of catch-all concept that, of course, now we all unfortunately know, like the back of our hands, the investment contract definition and the Howey test that goes with it. And Congress said, look, we, we're not just going to enumerate you know, stocks, bonds, debentures, notes, cha-cha-cha. We're going to throw in this catch-all category of an investment contract. And it took another seven or eight years after that law was uh, adopted by Congress for the Supreme Court to get around to say, well, what? Well, What's an investment contract? Like, what's up with that, right? And, and, and they did. And they, and they defined it now, the well-known Howey test, as I like to say, got tattooed up here on my arm, uh, <laughs> an investment of money uh, in a common enterprise with a reasonable expectation of profit, primarily from the efforts of others. What we did in the big articles, we said, well, let, let's slow things down a little here. Let's look back at the case law. Let's look back at what happened over 70 plus years and see what we can learn from that. And what you can see very clearly is that courts look at fundraising schemes and they say well let's see what's really going on is somebody buying something that they want to use or are they giving capital to someone else with the hope of a return that's broadly the distinction that's something we can all kind of wrap our minds around you know when the the, the the people from new york city came down to florida and visited howie he had a hotel and they stayed down there after the war and they enjoyed the sun and then he'd take them out to like these orange groves and say hey man look at all those oranges out there man could you imagine how many people are going to be drinking orange juice that's some good business here i'll tell you what i'll sell you some land with these orange trees on it and uh, you'll make a lot of money and they're like it eh, seems okay but I, I don't know much about oranges They're like, okay, not to worry. We have another company, our friends over here, Howie in the Hills, and they're going to just pick the oranges and sell them and we'll just send you a check and it'll be good. Bob's your uncle. Everything's good, right? So people say, sounds like a good idea to me. The Supreme Court said, let's take a second and look at what's going on here, really. The Howie company could have sold stock in a company that grew oranges, sold them, and made money. By dividing that into two ostensibly separate operations, one, hey, you own some land, two, we're just got a management contract here, you don't need to worry about anything, they if they attempted to do this workaround. So that arrangement wouldn't have fallen into any of the very specific um, categories of security. The Supreme Court said, yeah, no. That's an investment contract. That scheme in which the Howie company is raising money for their orange Grove business from people, they need the protections, the security laws. They don't know what are the risks. Did you, for example, just have an orange blight two years ago and you're very susceptible? Is there a drought? Is your management, you, you really depend on this one guy to do everything and he just quit? Or it's all the many, many things you might want to know before you parted with your money, none of which was provided because they said, well, hey, you're buying real estate, signing a management contract, nothing to see here that arrangement parrots itself over and over and over again over seven years where there is something that on its face may be a commercial transaction hey i'm selling you this thing and also maybe providing some services and you get these difficult lines to distinguish right when is it really a commercial transaction when is it really an investment transaction and federal courts have had to grapple with this over years years and years and years and years but at no point at no point along the way did the object of the scheme right whether it's the oranges or any which other thing there were a lot of things with animals being grown for their pelts oh i'm raising some beavers don't you see you could own the beavers because you don't really want the beavers right you just want you know sell the beaver pelts and, and make some money right so many many different things there's like a stamp machine they Cases, there's an earthworm case. I love that. Right. So, all these, nobody suggested that any of those things were themselves securities. But in complete fairness, none of those objects, right, really traded on markets afterwards. It wasn't like an earthworm market. Ooh, there's the price of earthworms moving up and down, right? So now crypto comes along very similar. The ICO cases fall boom right into that pattern, right? Hey, you know, Alec, you've got, you know, Alec coins. I'm right back at you, my friend, right? <laughs> <laughs> you got alec coin here and i got some big ideas about we're going to do a podcast business and we're going to do this and that da-da, 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 and it's going to be great right and so just i need like a hundred thousand dollars and so i said, okay i give you the money you go off you give me a coin and we wait to see what happens mirroring it's it's right down the middle fair enough fundraising scheme i'm not being given all the information i need that i would be right and so there we go. But now, all of a sudden, Alecoin has started trading. It's trading on a DEX. It's trading on Binance. God knows what's going on. And it's got this market price moving up and down. What do we do about that coin, right? What do we do about that asset? The, the thrust of our paper is you know we may not like it but that asset does not in, in most cases create any relationship with anybody else if you look at the paradigmatic case of ether notwithstanding the fact that you know you you can stake it to in, in a proof of stake network to protect the 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 network an ether token doesn't give you rights against anyone else the difference between a security and something it's not a security is there's a legal relationship between in, in the case of any other type of security between the person who creates the security and the person who owns the security, that legal relationship gets severed if the person who created the asset in the first place goes away. They, they go into bankrupt. If they're an individual, they die. You don't have a security anymore. With crypto assets, that does not exist, right? You continue these assets, go on and on and on for, for you know they, whether or not the, the particular party who deployed it um, is still around. And that nature, um, is something that's so fundamentally different from our traditional understanding of securities that it's not appropriate in any way, in our view, to consider those crypto assets to be uh, securities. Now, if you think there should be regulation around those crypto assets, fair enough. That's a very different uh, discussion to say, hey, we need to change our laws and, and add something to them to address that. So that's that's the crux of the paper. I'm still going to tell you the story about Ineluctable, but I'll give <laughs> That was a long answer. Please, whatever, yeah.
0: whatever. No, it's
2: good. What about like DAO
1: tokens and governance tokens, those do seem to convey rights. Do you put that in the same category?
2: Well, that that is the $64,000 question. And, and and in fact, you phrased it perfectly because you said they seem to create rights. And of course, over this weekend there was this thing with Arbitrum that blew up on Twitter, and um, you know, this is a very uh <laughs> consternating uh, situation. Um people have you know been sort of drawn into this idea that somehow, if you have a governance token, you're better off from a securities law point of view. I, I don't know where that idea particularly came from. In some cases, in many cases, the governance um, is really just addressing a very practical issue. If you've got a computer-based, smart contract-based protocol, there's a set of rules, there's a code, it's up on GitHub. Who gets to decide if you're adding to it or making some change or otherwise sort of interfacing that in some way? If you say, well, company X gets to make those decisions, then it feels very centralized. And so the the basic idea that the community of users of a given protocol can decide if that protocol is going to change is not something that should create that kind of security-like relationship. It's just like, well, here's how we sort of intersect with it but people of course took that concept and ran with it very very far down the line creating things that looked a lot like businesses with treasuries and and sometimes you know billions of dollars right and that gets very complicated um, as i'm sure you guys are very aware Um, there was a decision last week i can't keep track so much coming uh fast and heavy in uh, bzx uh in which there there was the cftc action but then there was also a separate private civil action um uh saying that uh users of the bzx protocol had a claim against certain of the developers and large parties uh who had uh, participated in the protocol uh to make them whole after the hack that where they lost a bunch of, of money and the argument that the people who lost money put forward is well this is really a general partnership The people in this DAO, or or, you know, holding these governance tokens, right, are really a general partnership, and under California law, you don't have to and you know acknowledge that you're a general partnership to be in a general partnership the three of us could start doing some business never use the word partnership once but a court later could come back and say hey you guys were in a partnership if a court did that and i was a bad actor and i like buggered off to wherever montenegro you know hoping hoping for the not not i don't want that, to that treatment right you guys could be liable for my actions I mean that's the way partnerships work, right? So this is something you know you want to be very careful about. Um, so and BZ, the the BZX uh, decision, which was only at, at a kind of what's called motion to dismiss, which was denied, but it raises important questions. So this question of where do governance tokens, just pull us back to your question, Alec, right? Where do governance tokens fit into that matrix is very fact-specific, and it depends on what was held out to people. Did they have a right? Was there a right, generally speaking, needs to be um, exercised against someone? Who would it be against the foundation, for example? Maybe yes. Maybe they've written it that way. Maybe not. You know, we, we, we need to be careful about that. But that is different from some other tokens and does need to be you know considered very, very carefully. You're absolutely right very tricky question.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting. And I I, I want to get back to your, uh, well, one of your conclusions, I think about the fungible crypto assets. But, you know, I, I primarily focus my efforts around like, Bitcoin, Bitcoin education, things like that. And it's always the thing that kind of rubs me the wrong way is that a lot of Bitcoiners think that the SEC is almost on their side, like for Bitcoin adoption, because they're targeting all these other tokens. I certainly don't take that view at all. I mean, the spirit of Crypto, if if it is a thing, is supposed to be pretty, you know, uh, individual, self sovereign, whatnot. And I I think of course Bitcoin is the the premier embodiment of that. But I certainly wouldn't want the SEC. You know, I'm not going to cheerlead the SEC as my as my point there. But anyway, is there any movement in the SEC where you think that? Um, I guess it goes back to the first kind of questions that I asked you. Do you think that they're getting more draconian there? I mean, I saw. Didn't ETH just be wasn't wasn't Ether just stated as being not a security by well, uh, well, yet again it's been said many times I guess but
2: it's very frustrating uh, because you know I mean and ironic not just frustrated but ironic because we have a rather decentralized regulatory framework in the U.S. so there is some irony there so we have two <laughs> primary markets regulators um, in the U.S. of course the SEC and the CFTC which is different from Europe it's different from most other jurisdictions which at generally speak has one markets regulator so we have this, you know, somewhat artificial distinction between commodity interests, which are derivatives, broadly swaps, options, futures, forwards, Mm -hmm. and, you know, um, securities, um, because we do not regulate as a general matter spot transactions in commodities because those are wholesale. Oh, you'd like, you know, you know, a thousand barrels of oil. That's I'm going to sell that to you. That's not a regulated transaction. That's a commercial transaction. It's just that crypto sort of kind of interferes with that. So we have these two regulatory bodies and the lines of connection between the two are not always very clear, and they've had disputes in the past about what's within my jurisdiction, what's within your jurisdiction. So the CFTC unequivocally, um, the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, um, unequivocally believes that Ether is a commodity for their purposes and not a security. It's also, this is really obtuse point, um, um, all securities are commodities within the commodity definition. So, so, so in some respects, security is a subset of commodities. So when we say it's a commodity, really what we, we mean is it's a commodity and not a security, right? But there's just saying something is a commodity doesn't tell you anything Mm. because it's it could be a commodity and also a security so just just, just mm-hmm. keeping everybody honest there. Um, but, but, but the CFTC clearly feels that ether is a commodity that is not a security. And one way we know this is because in CFTC regulated markets, we have futures markets for ether. If ether was a security, those would be under the jurisdiction of the SEC, not the CFTC, because that would be a single security and uh, a, a, a security would be something we call a security-based swap. And therefore it would it would not fall within the CFTC jurisdiction. But the SEC has not made it clear at all. There was the famous Bill Hinman speech where he suggests, interestingly, yeah. you know, for your for your listeners, go back, read that speech when uh, uh Howie met Gary Plastic. At no point in that speech does he talk about whether ether is or is not a security he is meticulous in saying whether a transaction in ether is a securities transaction and that distinction is really critical in our paper and in what we say it's not so much that the object is a security is that is the sale of that regulated as a securities transaction it's a very subtle but very critical point in any event i want to come back to your main point is the SEC pro Bitcoin? I I, I don't think it's so much that it's pro Bitcoin. I think it's just the Bitcoin ship sailed so far down the line that that's not a fight that they really want to engage in at least or so it appears at this time, rather than sort of being pro Bitcoin in any sort of significant way. But they have not conceded Ether, And they've certainly not conceded anything other uh, really than Bitcoin.
0: Okay. And then of course, I want to be sensitive to your time here. But um, you know, continuing on with this idea with your paper uh first of all ineluctable modality maybe some, some let me give you that. About
2: like the two-minute version because I love this story. sure it, it's very personal to me um so you know ineluctable broadly means sort of inescapable or inevitable so and modality is just the mo- mode or the nature of the way so so basically we say what is the inherent inescapable nature what are securities yes you know, so it's like fancy pants right way, way of saying that why use that phrase in particular? Um, because it, as it happens, I'm a quite a big fan of James Joyce's uh, major work, Ulysses, uh, the Novel. And um, Ulysses, the novel, um, is broken up into, I think it's 18 or 19 chapters. Each chapter um, uh, Joyce gave a name to. Um, although in the published work you don't see the names, but but if you're a fan, you know what the names are. The third chapter is called Proteus, and Proteus was the Greek god of kind of change or morphing or, or changing. And if you see the paper, it begins with a quote from Homer, which was sort of the origin point of that, about Proteus and sort of morphing and this idea of change and what is real and what is not inherent one of the critical points we make in our paper is that about why uh, most crypto assets are not securities is because you don't have this legal relationship that causes you to have to say well the token is a security at one point and it stops being a security at another point and we fundamentally reject this idea this idea of morphing that a token mm. can go from being a security to not being a security because there's no way for any third party ever to ascertain when is this magical moment, when this morphing transpired. And so when you read the paper, you'll see there are a couple of references to to Proteus morphing and changing, and that securities are securities. If you're a security, you create a legal relationship with a third party, boom, that's it. You don't get to like, well, you were, but now you're not, but then you can become a security again in the future. How Mm -hmm. does that work, and how does that all apply? So basically, the ineluctable nature, the inevitable nature of securities is that there's an inherent relationship between at least two different people and that's not something that morphs or changes over time so now you know the story of intellectual modality and hopefully a bonus vocabulary word playing scrabble
0: yeah interesting <laughs> and then just a quick follow-up i think alec might have one too but i see some examples in your paper like is there any you know ripple and dogecoin all these i presume i think there's even been some headway on ripple maybe not being a security but anyway like you said the SEC is not giving any ground on this yet, but your position is that, yeah, as long as it's a fungible crypto asset.
2: Super critical point sure. here, right? So coming back all the way to the oranges and all these other things, the whether or not XRP the token is a security is completely independent of the question when Ripple Labs, the company, sold XRP tokens to people were those securities transactions. Mm. Right? Those Mm. are two very different questions. And that's why I say when you read the Hidman speech, you see him being very precise about that. This is a really critical distinction. And one of my hopes with the article is that we could help people better understand that critical distinction. So you may view XRP as not at all a security. However, you may still say, for example, I believe Ripple Labs, the company, violated Section 5 of the Securities Act by offering and selling that in a scheme without registering.
1: So as an English major, I tip my hat to you for bringing up Joyce, one of my favorite all time pieces of literature is two gallons um, from Dubliners. Uh, But uh, so my final question, right? Does having an anonymous Genesis story, right, which Bitcoin does, but other Monero uh, also has, does that offer any, does it make it more slippery, right? Or does it offer any protection from trying to be pursued as a security or is it irrelevant?
2: I don't think it's 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 fundamental in 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 my view. The, the fundamental question, in my view, is what is the nature of the asset, um, not where did the asset come from. Um, so, you know, I don't believe knowing that Vitalik Buterin was one of the core you know people. There are a number of people, but he was one of the core developers of the original implementation of uh, the Ethereum standard and the creation of the Ethereum native token. You know, changes anything in the analysis there. Um, I think there's a practical matter if you if, you know, the person is truly uh, or people are truly uh, anonymous. It's very difficult to uh, get jurisdiction over them. But really, the crypto industry should not focus on, well, if you can't find me, I guess I'm okay. That's that's an ineffective system. And I think we all need to recognize. And I know, Alec, you're you're extremely familiar with with securities issues. You know, one should always assume that a government that's interested in finding you can find you that is a prudent thing to assume um i would just say um so <laughs> so so yeah so i think anonymity you know anonymity can help in other ways i would say alex though not necessarily from a regulatory point of view but it also can create a sense of fairness i think one i mean there are many things that i love about bitcoin that many people love about bitcoin but one of them is that you know for whatever reasons satoshi you know, he, she, they, you know, chose not to imbue uh, the protocol with that personality. And I think it does allow the protocol to create, have a a different character than one where there is a living human or humans uh, who are closely associated with it. The humans are fallible, you know, anonymity is not. So I think there are a variety of factors that are relevant with anonymity. I just would be cautious about from a regulatory point of view, assuming that anonymity gives you material better position that way.
0: Very interesting. Yeah. Louis. thank you so much for this. Uh, very enlightening. Uh, listen, as we close it, where can our viewers, listeners find more about you, what you're doing? And also, I don't know, any, any final thoughts on where you think we're going here?
2: Yeah, look, it's been great. This is a great conversation. And I I love really engaging, you know, at this very high level and thoughtful level. So thank you. Um, You know, our website is uh, www.dlxlaw.com. So there's stuff about us there. Um, You can follow me on Twitter um, at NY Lawyer. Um, so that's my Twitter handle and, uh, generally just, you know, uh, keep, keep things up. But really, I think the community does a great job with engaging with each other. You know, even on Twitter, when, when I see things, I disagree with the fact that people are having open and lively discussions, you know, that's the Agora, that's the forum, that's what we should be doing. And I just would like to see more of that, you know, perhaps from our policymakers too, but there are things going on in DC that are very encouraging. And I, I just wrapping up where we started with it being a Monday, I'm, I'm quite optimistic. I'm not. I'm not at all concerned. I think this is a technology that adds tremendous value, and in due course, um, that that's really what matters.
0: Great, great, great stuff, Louis. Thank you so much. Have a great week.
1: Thank you. Cheers. Thank you, Lewis.